Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. The book of Colossians, chapter 1, and uh, while you're turning there, uh, I must make a confession. It was actually not Chris's fault. It was my fault. <laughs> I have reversed the orders of, of the songs on our slides, so um, no one point for me. <laughs> Uh, But we will be in uh, Colossians again uh, this morning, picking up where we left off uh, last week, Colossians chapter 1. And um, I want to begin by reading um, from verse 3 down to verse 8. But the focus of uh, our time this morning will be on the second half of verse 5 down to verse 8. But we'll read read 3 to 8. Uh, together. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, the Apostle Paul is writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we read, beginning in verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And then our focus this morning. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Well, Father, again, we are grateful for your word. And we are grateful for the saints that You have raised up throughout many centuries to faithfully minister Your Word to Your sheep, to Your people, and to be the means by which You would both call Your people to Yourself and build them up in the Word. We're grateful for a man like Epaphras who set an example, who is a model of that Christ-centered apostolic ministry wherein he proclaimed the Gospel to his own native countrymen. And they believed. And they were made part of the people of God. And Lord, we here desire to carry on that very same legacy. We desire to both proclaim the Word from this place and to see it grow and increase and strengthen the body of Christ. We desire that it would bear fruit in the same way that You intend it to. And so Lord, I pray for us this day as we consider the example of Epaphras and as we consider what faithful ministry is to look like. I pray that You would instruct us from Your Word. And show us the glories of the Gospel in Christ 
and in His church. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our subject of this morning, as you can see on the screen, is the work and fruit of faithful ministry. And by ministry here, I am not just referring to any general works of service done in the name of or for Christ. I am specifically thinking about that ministry of the Word. This is a ministry that is to be exemplified and embodied by pastors and elders of churches. But at the same time, as they serve as examples and as they carry out their ministry, they are also to be imitated by the people of God. And therefore, other Christians can likewise carry out the ministry of the Word. Individual believers can disciple other believers, can disciple non-believers. They can open up the Word of God and teach it and explain it to others and call some, of course, to repentance and faith in Christ while instructing others in what faithful Christian living looks like. Older women can disciple younger women in the Word. Parents can disciple their children in the Word. And Christians can disciple all peoples through the work of evangelism, which is itself a ministry of the Word. So, ministry in this sense, and as it is exemplified by pastors, can then spread and take on a variety of different forms. But, it must always begin in the pulpit. There is an old saying, I don't know how long it's been around, but I've heard it many, many times, which says, as goes the pulpit, so goes the church. As goes the pulpit, so goes the church. If there is compromise in the pulpit, if there is vagueness, if there is error and even heresy being proclaimed and taught from the pulpit, and it's being digested, and it's being tolerated by the church, then the church will likewise end up in a compromised and a confused and perhaps even an apostate state. It will become no church at all. But if there is truth and the Gospel and the whole counsel of God being faithfully taught and practiced, churches will be strengthened. Christians will grow in holiness. God will be honored. And there will be a clear distinction between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. And so ministry 
and especially the ministry of the Word, is something that the church must get right. It is the most important ministry the church has. It is her defining mark. Even if you go back to the Protestant Reformation and the post-Reformation when theologians and pastors wrote about what the marks of a true church is and was at the time as they're, as they're, as they're thinking about how, how do you know if you're looking at a true church or not? As they're writing about these things either in books or in confessions or in sermons, sometimes among them you would find disagreements between them over marks like the sacraments, the, the right administration of the sacraments, or even things like church discipline. But one mark they were always in agreement over was the ministry of the Word. There is no true church apart from the true proclamation of the Word of God. A true church for it to be recognized as a true church must faithfully carry out the ministry of the Word. Right? So we must be clear about this. This is something we cannot waffle on. We have to understand it and understand it well. And in our short passage that we're in this morning, there is much that we can learn about the nature of faithful ministry in the example of Epaphras. As I mentioned last week, Epaphras is the man who brought the Gospel to the Colossians. He was a native of Colossae, which is why Paul says in chapter 4 of this Same letter. He is one of you, Colossians. He's from your city. He is a Colossian Christian. But he was also a man who labored side by side with the Apostle Paul. When this letter was written, Epaphras at the time was with Paul in prison. And he was the one who brought Paul the report of the Gospel taking root and spreading among the Colossians. As Paul says in verse 8, Epaphras has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so you can think of a man like Epaphras in much the same way you would think of a man like Timothy. Sometimes Timothy was with Paul preaching and teaching alongside him wherever they were going and in whatever city they were in and whatever synagogue they were entering. And other times, Paul would send Timothy to other places to preach and to teach or to strengthen churches that had already been planted and needed further strengthening, instruction, encouragement. This is what Epaphras would do as well. And so because of his key role 
in this early church, I think there is much that we can learn from him about faithful ministry. And again, this is what I want us to consider this morning. I have three points for you this morning if you're taking notes. And the first point is this. I want us to consider, first of all, the authority of faithful ministry. The authority of faithful ministry. Authority among faithful ministers is not something that is innate or inherent within them. It does not have its source in them. They do not have some special, unique anointing from on high. In other words, a man doesn't have authority just by definition of who he is. As if some men have a kind of divine aura that's hovering over them always and follows them wherever they go, or as if they are some kind of demigod. If that were the case, there would be no qualifications for ministry. There would be no character requirements. And there would certainly be no option or possibility to rebuke or even discipline those same ministers. You would always be fighting a losing battle because their authority could never be challenged. And that's what often happens in cults. That's what often happens, as we've even been considering in our Sunday school within the charismatic movement. Among some of these charismatic leaders, they are considered to be divinely anointed from on high, and you cannot question them at all. No, authority among faithful ministers is always derivative. It is rooted in something or someone outside of themselves. It comes from another. There is an anchor that keeps the minister from steering the ship away, and that anchor is Christ. You depart from Christ, and you're without the anchor drifting into a, an endless sea, which will inevitably lead to destruction. The authority that faithful ministry is primarily grounded upon is that of Christ. If you look with me at verse 7 for a moment, you'll notice that Paul calls Epaphras our beloved fellow servant, or more accurately, our beloved fellow slave. And Paul here is not calling Epaphras a fellow slave because they're presently in prison together. This is not a term that has to do with imprisonment. He uses another altogether different term to describe something like that. Now this this word here for slave is a technical term. It is a title. 
that speaks of one's relationship to Christ. Christ is the master, and the minister is the slave, and he does only what the master approves. Throughout Paul's letters, this is a title that he himself wears proudly. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, he calls himself a slave of Christ Jesus. Likewise, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, he begins his greeting there by calling both himself and Timothy slaves of Christ Jesus. And later in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, when speaking of Epaphras, once again, Paul calls him there a slave of Christ Jesus. That is the meaning here. As a fellow slave, Epaphras serves Christ first and foremost. He takes his marching orders from Christ. He speaks on behalf of Christ. And this, to be clear, does not mean that he's receiving private communication and revelation directly from Christ. It means that he is a representative of Christ. It means that he teaches and ministers in accordance with the Word of Christ revealed in the Gospel. Closely related to this, we could also add that the authority of faithful ministry is apostolic. It is in accordance with apostolic teaching and doctrine which itself is grounded in the authority of Christ. In this regard, Epaphras was also an apostolic representative. In the absence of the apostles, Epaphras was trusted with preaching and with teaching to others, like, of course, the Colossians here. And the Colossians, for their part, could be sure that Epaphras could be trusted because his teaching was in accordance with that of the apostles. If you look with me again at verse 7. Notice that Paul says that Epaphras is a faithful minister or servant of Christ. And then, if you've got an ESV, there's a note on the following phrase. It either reads as on your behalf, as in the ESV, or on our behalf, as in translations like the LSB and the NIV. And without getting into all the details this morning about the reason for this particular variant, which is due to different readings among ancient manuscripts, using a different pronoun here, what is very clear is that the earliest and the best Greek manuscripts that we have all say on our behalf. Epaphras, Paul says, 
is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. Which again means that Epaphras' ministry has apostolic authority. If the Colossians hear Epaphras' teaching, they can be sure that his teaching is in accordance with the apostles. In the absence of the apostles, Epaphras is the one who represents their ministry. And likewise, friends, all faithful Christian ministry is to be the same kind of thing. We do not have, of course, now, 2,000 years later, apostles among us. We do not have their presence with us. If anyone ever claims to be an apostle, you should immediately reject that claim because that was a unique office that required, required at a minimum, that you had been an eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ, of which no man 2,000 years later is. We do not have apostles among us, but in their absence, we do have their word. We have what God, by the Holy Spirit, breathed out and wrote through their hands. We have the apostolic Word with its apostolic authority which comes by the authority of Christ. We have the Word of Christ. And because of this, all faithful ministry is to be built on the foundation of the Word in the Scriptures. When ministry departs from this, when it rejects this as a foundation, it is departing from Christ. And it is departing from the apostles. And therefore, friends, it has no authority. It does not matter what someone says. Their words are words that disappear with the wind. There's no truth to them. When churches depart from this foundation, they are departing from Christ and from His apostles, and therefore they have no authority as a church. It doesn't matter if they call themselves a church. It doesn't matter if they have a sign outside that says, we're a church. Outside on our very walls here is etched in stone Burton Memorial Baptist Church. And if this church were ever to depart from the Word of God, was to reject this, it doesn't matter that the word church is etched in stone. To bring my Alabama out, it ain't a church! Because Christ doesn't recognize it as a church. The lampstand has been removed. 
Its authority has been cast out from the one who possesses authority in himself. This place will not be a church if we ever depart from the Word because Christ will not recognize it as such. Now, I feel sure of better things for us. (laughs) As the author of Hebrews says, right? Things having to do with salvation. But the point is that any authority that is to be recognized, that is to be honored and submitted to in faithful ministry must be authority that is grounded in Christ and the apostles and which comes from the Holy Scriptures. Which leads us to a second and related point about faithful ministry, which has to do with the work of faithful ministry. The work of faithful ministry. The work of faithful ministry primarily revolves around teaching. It is a ministry of the Word. And as such, it is the Word that must be taught. Ministry is not primarily about charity. Though that may be involved, it is not primarily about creating social change. It is not primarily about changing culture and influencing politics. These are things that may be possible fruits as Christians are instructed and taught by the Word, and then they put the Word into practice in the various spheres of their own lives. These are works that may be applications of the Word in various places and in different ways. But the primary work of faithful ministry, what the minister himself is to be devoted Two in his labors is the work of teaching the Word. This is the work that Epaphras himself did among the Colossians. If you notice with me in verse 5, Paul speaks here of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. And he says that the Colossians had heard of this very hope before they heard it in the word of the truth, the gospel. They heard it in verse 6 as the grace of God in truth. And then in verse 7, Paul identifies Epaphras as the one who had taught the word to them. He says, you learned it. You learned the grace of God from Epaphras. He was their teacher. And his work and his labor was to teach them the Word. And I think it's also worth noting how Epaphras taught 
the Word. And there's two points that I want you to see about this. First of all, He taught them the Word as truth. He taught the Word as truth. Again, in verse 5, Paul says that the Colossians had learned of their great heavenly hope in the Word of the truth. And then again, in verse 6, he says that they had heard and understood the grace of God in truth. The ministry of the Word is not a matter of sharing opinion. It's not a dialogue. It's not a conversation that is to be had. It's not even a friendly debate. It's not an exchange of ideas. It's especially not story time. You can be assured that when Epaphras was teaching in Colossae, following the apostolic model with apostolic authority, he was not saying to the people there, you know, I know you have many gods that you worship, and I'd like that you maybe consider the one that I believe in? Question mark? He's not looking around and saying, I see that there's a great society of pluralism here and everyone has their own gods. And Maybe you'll be like me and start worshiping this one. There's not a shred of evidence. There's not a single example in the whole of the biblical corpus of a prophet of Christ, of any apostle, ever teaching or preaching in that manner. It was none of their practice to teach the Word as one possible option among many. They were not pluralists in this regard. They did not believe that there were many ways to God or many ways to be saved or many truths to be considered, and you can pick whatever you'd like. It all leads to the same place. Now, when the Word of God was taught, and when it was proclaimed, it was proclaimed as the truth. To the exclusion of all others. There's no fellowship truth of light and the darkness that dominated and dominates the peoples. In that sense, friends, biblical and historic Christianity does have a claim. Does make a claim to have a monopoly on truth. Oftentimes in our very much so pluralistic society, people get offended by things like that. They will mock you with those very same words, right? Do you think, Christians, that you have a monopoly on truth? Yes. That's the answer. Yes, we do. 
And it's not because there's some secret knowledge that we possess with our own minds, but it is because God has spoken in His Word. He is a God, as Titus 1 verse 2 says, who never lies. He is the God of truth. And therefore, when His Word is taught and proclaimed, it must be taught as it is. As the truth. Now, it's a strange phenomenon in, in my mind. Of course, there's reasons for this. I, I think there's spiritual deceptive reasons for this. But it's a, it's a strange phenomenon that when it comes to many other claims to truth, many other um, religions, if you will, take for example, Islam. People recognize that within Islam, they are making a claim to have the truth. Within something like Mormonism, it's the same thing. They are claiming to possess the truth. Okay? People recognize that is a fact of all religious claims. And yet for some reason, when it comes to Christianity, it's, it's hyper-offensive. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, I just want to say, that should not be so for us. We should not shrink back in any way from the offense that they, that, that may cause in the world. If if you believe, as you should, that Christ has defeated the grave and has risen from the dead and has been seated at the right hand of God, that changes everything. Every other claim to the contrary must by definition be rejected. And this is the way that the truth has always been proclaimed. When the prophets were sent to the rebellious people of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament, this is the same thing they were saying. Your Baal worship is false. Your God, Moloch, whom you're sacrificing your children to, is a false, worthless, evil, demonic God. Repent, therefore, and trust in the Lord. When Christ came into the world, you know the claim that He made. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Me. In all preaching, in all teaching, from all generations, this has been the claim. And this is how it has been proclaimed. The Gospel has been proclaimed as the truth. The Christian church, more than anything, needs men who believe that this is what it says it is. The word of truth. And because of that, they must be willing to stand upon it. To declare, like Martin Luther, here I stand. I can do no other. 
So help me God. Their conscience must be bound by it. Their words must be compelled by it. Their hearts must be fired by it. Even if no one will listen, the minister of the Word must be like the prophets of old. The prophet Jeremiah said that if he refused to speak the Word of the Lord, there was in his heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in his bones. I am weary with holding it in, he said. And I cannot. It has to come out. The name of God must be honored. His glory must be declared. And so must it be in the ministry of the Word. There is truth that must be proclaimed and the minister of the Word must stand upon it and proclaim it. I appreciate far more when a minister preaches the Word and makes an argument from the Word about some truth in Scripture and stands upon it as truth, even when I think they may not understand something accurately. Because I know ultimately where he stands. And I know that he's taking the Word seriously as the Word of the truth. I can respect a man and honor a man like an R.C. Sproul, like a John MacArthur, or any number of other well-known Bible teachers even though I have certain theological disagreements with them based upon the Word. I can respect them because at a minimum, I know where they stand. And I know that their stances have come from taking the Word of God seriously as the Word of truth. I can respect that far more than a man who is unwilling to stand on anything or who is an expert in presenting views and having no views of his own. Or even worse, who is unwilling to simply open up the Word of God and teach it as it is. That plagues. Plagues so many places throughout the world where this book is not considered and handled as the Word of truth. If you don't think it is, well then what does the teaching ministry become? Again, it becomes story time. It becomes a nihilistic lesson. It becomes a TED Talk. It becomes a life coach session. You can find a bajillion Teachers and gurus who can provide that all day. Give me someone who will teach the Word and stand upon it as it is. That is faithful, apostolic, Christ-centered ministry. And what the church needs are ministers 
who will teach this word as truth. But another point about how Epaphras taught the word pointing out is that he taught it as a message about the gospel, about the grace of God. In verse 5, Paul refers here to the word of the truth that the Colossians heard from Epaphras specifically as the gospel. And in verse 6, as the grace of God. These are words and phrases that summarize the entirety of the message of the Word. This is what all of Scripture is about. As you understand the whole unfolding story of redemption from creation to Christ and ultimately to consummation, it is about the grace of God in the Gospel. In the very beginning of Scripture, when God creates the world and man falls into sin, already there is the grace of God and the Gospel that is seen. God promises in the midst of the curse coming upon the world and death entering into the world that the woman Eve will have an offspring who will crush the head of the serpent and succeed where Adam failed. That's the first proclamation of the Gospel coming from the mouth of God Himself. In the lives of the patriarchs, the grace of God and the Gospel is seen in the promises that God makes to them to make their offspring multiply, to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and to raise up an offspring from among them in whom all the nations will be blessed. If you are a you are a descendant of Abraham. You are his seed. You are his children. Why? How? Because you've been united to Christ, who is the promised offspring, who brings blessings to the nations. In the Exodus and in the wilderness wanderings, the grace of God and the gospel is seen in many ways, but especially in the provisions that God makes in the sacrificial system to atone for His people's sin so that they will be able to dwell in His presence and He in theirs. And these sacrifices, of course, pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice who would come in the person of Christ who was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world so that we can dwell in His presence and He in ours. And of course, in the coming of Christ, the grace of God and the Gospel is revealed no longer in types and in shadows, but in the very person of Christ Himself who lays down His life for His people to save them effectually, surely, from their sins. All throughout the Word, there is grace and there is Gospel. And when the Word of God is taught, when it is proclaimed in the church and to the world in all creation under heaven, it is to be taught as the message of good news. A message about what our holy 
God has done, has accomplished for sinful man. He is a God who saves. And thus, He is a God of grace. But as we conclude our time this morning, I want to end with the third and final point about faithful ministry. And this concerns the fruit of faithful ministry. The fruit of faithful ministry. When the word of the truth, when the word of grace, when the word of the gospel is taught and proclaimed, it spreads. It acts like leaven, leavening the whole lump. In verse 6, when Paul speaks of the gospel coming to the Colossians, he says that it has come to them in the same way that it has come to the rest of the world. In the whole world, he says, it is bearing and increasing. And he does not speak of this as a past action. He is not saying that it bore fruit and it increased. He speaks of it as something that is ongoing. It is continuing apace. Throughout the world, even in Paul's day, the Gospel was spreading. It began in Jerusalem. Spread throughout Judea then Samaria, and then it metastasized like a cancer, but only good. It was uncontainable. It was uncontrollable. The whole Mediterranean, in fact, within the span of some 30 years, started having Christians all throughout its major cities. Ephesus, Corinth, Rome, and more. If it was banned, from the Jewish synagogue in one city, the pagan Gentiles would hear it and believe. If the Gentiles tried to stamp it out through arrest and imprisonments, the prison guards would hear it and believe. If a Christian missionary like Paul was shipwrecked on an island, all of his plans seemingly going awry, the natives on the island would hear it. And believe. And this has been the story of the gospel since the very beginning. There have been ebbs and flows, no doubt. There have been seasons of dryness. There have been seasons of incredible growth. There have been battles fought and won, and there have been battles fought and lost, or at least for a time. So it seemed. There have been periods where it has seemed as if the gospel tree as a whole was withering away. As when Paul himself said, all who are in Asia have turned away from me. The spread of the gospel is not, nor has it ever been, a straight line up. But I can assure you, of what it will never be. It will never be a straight line down, vanishing altogether. 
And it will never be so because the Gospel is the power of God for salvation and He will save His people through it. The world may grow increasingly wicked. Our nation may descend deeper and deeper into the abyss of sin. But Christ did not ever promise to build the world. He promised to build His church who would inherit the world. And He builds that church through the Gospel. Which means, at a minimum, that the Gospel will never fail to accomplish exactly what Christ has ordained for it. In some places, and at some times, the Gospel is proclaimed as a testimony, as a witness against a people who reject it. As was the case, every single time Paul went into a synagogue preaching the Gospel and it was rejected. His preaching there did not fail. It was not fruitless ministry. His labors were not in vain. The Gospel served as a prophetic witness against those who rejected it. But in some places, and at some times, the Gospel is proclaimed and is the means by which God calls His people Himself and saves them. As was the case with the Colossians, and as is the case with you. But in all cases, the Gospel is producing the exact fruit that God intends for it. The fruit of faithful ministry is not something that the minister determines for himself. He is but a sower of seeds or a waterer of seeds. But it is God who ultimately gives the growth. And that growth at many times may be seen immediately. But at other times, it may never be seen at all. It may be the fruit of which he only later learns of, perhaps thousands of years later. I, mean, I want you to think about for this. I want you to think about this for for a moment. Do you realize that the fruit of Epaphras' ministry that is fruit that is still growing. That's fruit that's still producing and in increasing and flourishing. Thousands of years later, he's long gone. And he's still producing fruit. Epaphras' ministry in Colossae 
produced, of course, immediate fruit in the lives of some of the Colossians. But then it's his faithfulness to report this good news that leads Paul to write this very letter. And this letter instructs us thousands of years later. This letter teaches us from the life of Epaphras thousands of years later. That is fruit that he could never even imagine coming from his own life. And yet, it is Gospel fruit nonetheless. You could say that about every single one of these faithful ministers of the Gospel. Paul himself still as the foundation, one of the foundation pillars of the church, still bearing fruit. It's through his pen that I became a Christian. Thank you, Paul, for me being your fruit. You can think of men 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Your Charles Spurgeons, your Jonathan Edwards, your faithful ministers of the gospel. We're going through J.C. Ryle's book now. He's long dead, and yet he's still bearing fruit in the lives of countless thousands of people around the world. That's a fruit that he would have never seen, never even contemplated seeing, and yet fruit nonetheless. And the point, friends, is that when you make your life about Christ and the Gospel, when you teach your children, when you disciple others, however your gospel ministry may be, it's never done in vain. And it's never fruitless. You may long at times to see immediate fruit just as a by way of encouragement. You you may pray for things like that. We pray for things like that. But you have to understand as well that particularly in the life of a Christian and in the work of the Gospel, that fruit is going to be multiplying for as long as the earth still remains until the Lord returns and then the rewards come. None of your work in the Gospel and in the Word, none of your Christian life lived unto the glory of Christ is ever in vain it will produce fruit. Faithful ministry will produce fruit. And it will be the means by which Christ builds His church. Amen? Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Well, Father, we are thankful for the Gospel thankful that even these many thousands of years later, we can say even of us, it is bearing fruit and increasing. Growing us in a knowledge of who You are, of Your Word, of Your will. Conforming us into the image of Christ and preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And for this, Lord, we are grateful. And we do pray for each 
one of our own lives, that as we carry out the ministry of the Word here, as we carry it out in our homes and elsewhere, we pray that in accordance with Your Word, it would bear fruit and that that fruit would abound to Your glory. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.